BirdNote presents. This is Threatened, and I'm your host, Ari Daniel. Our stories for this season so far have been told under the shadow or reality of extinction. In this episode, producer Savannah Harriman Pote spent four months asking if there's a story about extinction in Hawaii that has a not so dreadful ending. The story she found is about the largest piece of featherwork in Hawaiian history, the princess it was made for, and the birds whose feathers it was made from. Savannah grew up in Hawaii and lives in Honolulu, but this story begins with her in Modesto, California, standing outside the wrong place. I'm at the wrong house. I'm at the wrong house. I'm in Modesto to see Rick San Nicolas, a master feather worker. I'm standing outside of what I thought was Rick's house, only after five minutes to realize that I'm one street over. And I should have realized because he has a giant Hawaiian flag outside of his door. Well, hello there. Hey, I went to the wrong house. You did? You would have thought that the Hawaiian flag would have tipped me off, but... <laughs> How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Rick is native Hawaiian, or Kanaka Maoli. He was born in Honolulu in Hawaii and moved to California with his family when he was young. Been here in California for quite a long time. But as soon as I step into his workshop... What a voices! I feel like I'm back home in Hawaii. There's Hawaiian music playing, he's got koa wood furniture, and then just wall-to-wall feather capes. It is the largest private collection in the world, and there's probably in the room about, I think, 26 or 28 feather capes. These capes, which are called ahu'ula, are made from countless feathers, all tied to netting by hand. And the feathers range in color from iridescent greens to eye-popping yellows and reds. And before I have a moment to take it in, Rick is ushering me over to this large set of drawers which contain, you guessed it, even more capes. Most people don't ever get to see this, but there's, you know, there are drawers full of capes that are in here. One of my favorites that Rick shows me is a shoulder cape made from rooster feathers. It starts off with these beautiful rust-colored feathers speckled with white, and then is bordered with these long feathers that are so dark, they look like they've been dipped in ink. And that's just one of the capes in Rick's collection. So Rick is a collector as well as a feather worker? Oh, Rick didn't just collect these. Rick is a kumuhulu nui, or master feather worker. So he made all these capes. Featherworking is an art form that dates back centuries in Hawaii. Ahu'ula, like these tapes, were made for ali'i, or chiefs. Now, Rick has dedicated his life to the practice of featherworking, on recreating pieces of featherwork with some sort of historical significance. And he's done a ton of these. But there was this one piece of art in particular that brought me to Modesto. I tracked Rick down because I heard that he wanted to recreate a special piece of featherwork, the pa'u of Nahi Ena Ena. Savannah, what's a pa'u? So, unlike almost everything else in Rick's workshop, it's not a cape, it's not a cloak, it's a skirt, and it was made 
for a princess. All right, so we're gonna leave Modesto and jump back in time almost 200 years to 1823. We're in the kingdom of Hawaii. Specifically, we're in Lahaina on Maui Island. It's the seat of power for the royal family led by Liho Liho, who was also known as Kamehameha II. Just a heads up, there will be more than one Kamehameha. Okay, got it. The people of Lahaina get together to make a singular piece of art, something that has never been made before. A pa'u, or skirt, for the princess of the kingdom and Liho Liho's sister, Harrietta Keo Puolani Nahi Ena Ena. It's going to be the largest piece of featherwork in the history of Hawaii. Well, how big are we actually talking? It's 20 feet long. Wow. Yeah, just for scale, <laughs> I'm five feet tall, so the po'u is four times my size. I think it's also like the height of two pro-league basketball hoops stacked on top of each other. And everything was made by hand, just like Rick is still doing today in his workshop in Modesto. So Rick shows me a little bit of his process when he makes a cloak. First, he takes a net in the final shape of the cloak. He has these custom-made, and the one Rich shows me is about as big as a full-size mattress, which doesn't seem too large. But then I see the feather bundles that Rick makes to tie onto the net, and they are tiny. There are three feathers in each bundle. These feathers, I mean, the one bundle is no bigger than a quarter. You're not really doing yourself any favors. <laughs> true. Very true. So really... To make a cloak, all Rick has to do is tie a bundle of feathers together and attach it to the netting. And he does that about 65,000 times. So if you look at it at the finished form, it'll be well over 200,000 individual feathers and maybe closer to a quarter million individual feathers that'll be on a piece like this too. I could never do that. I've got this cross stitch that's taking me years to complete. <laughs> right? I don't think I've ever done anything 65 thousand times. So naturally, certain pieces of featherwork can take generations to make. But the people of Lahaina, they finished the pa'u in record time, only about eight months. Ritz says that to complete it so quickly, master feather workers in Lahaina would have had to work around the clock, tying feather bundle after feather bundle after feather bundle after feather bundle. Yeah, I get the idea. It seems like a tremendous undertaking, even for a princess. Well, Nahiana Ena isn't just any princess. In Hawaii, your lineage determines the amount of mana, or power, you have. Nahi Ena Ena and her brother, Prince Kawikeau Uli, are two of the most powerful ali'i, or chiefs, in history, according to their bloodlines. They outrank even their late father, King Kamehameha I, often called King Kamehameha the Great. The story goes that Nahi Ena Ena and her siblings were carried upon the shoulders of King Kamehameha because he had to prostrate himself in recognition of their station and rank. Marcus Hanale Marzan is the cultural advisor to the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. The pa'u will end up in the Bishop Museum's collection, along with many other national treasures from the kingdom. So, Nahi Ena Ena is definitely deserving of this honor based on rank alone. But Marcus says it's not just a matter of status. Nahi Ena Ena and her brother, Kawike Auli, represent the hope for the kingdom of Hawaii. 
And for the people of Lahaina, it's kind of a last hope. How so exactly? In the 1820s, the Kingdom of Hawaii is undergoing profound changes, due in large part to the presence of Christian missionaries and all of the principles and, well, prejudice they brought with them. And this conflict is apparent in Princess Nahiena'ena's own life, basically from the beginning. So she's a, a young child when missionaries come into Hawaii, you know, in the 1820s. But before that, she was always being groomed and trained to be that next ruler or that next level of the family line to pass on the legacy of the Kamehameha Kuleana or responsibilities to the next generation. So on one hand, she has to shoulder the expectations of the missionaries, as well as many in the kingdom who were adopting this new set of values. Nahi Ana'ana's own mother, an incredibly powerful ali'i, converted to Christianity in 1823. Isn't that the same year that the pa'u was made? Yes. And the feather workers who made the pa'u want Nahi Ana'ana to protect their way of life in Hawaii. And part of that hope is that Nahi Ana'ana will ensure the royal line and the power of the ali'i by bearing an heir with Kawikea'uli, her brother. Oh, wow. That's, um, that's, that's quite the responsibility. Yeah. That's why they create a skirt rather than a cape. As a woman, Nahi Ana'ana is uniquely positioned to create and carry the future ruler of Hawaii. Only she has that reproductive power. And to be clear, the people of Lahaina anticipate that Nahi Ana'ana would wear the pa'u throughout her life. But... In 1825, when it's first presented to her, she's only nine years old. At the age of nine, when the pa'u was completed and created and presented to her, she is battling this huge weight that's been put on her shoulders, the hopes and aspirations and dreams of her people for her, and then her training from her missionary upbringing um, don't always come together very seamlessly. She had to navigate a very complex world. And I can't imagine, you know, a, a nine-year-old child today having to deal with that kind of weight. That is a lot to carry for sure. Yeah. And also, like, literally a lot to carry. Right. So the pa'u is two and a half feet wide. At that age, it likely would have covered Nahi Ana'ana's whole torso down to her feet and it would have been wrapped around her several times. Here's how Rick, the master feather worker, envisions it. Only being nine years old, 20 feet long. I mean, you're, you're going to be wrapped like a burrito. I mean, this is a heavy-duty garment. You might not expect that of feather work, but Rick says that even just a cloak will take a toll after a while. You know, I had a parrot, uh, a macaw, and he was a miniature macaw. So even when I was making capes years ago, he would sit on my shoulder, you know, and the bird is probably all of them pound and a quarter. And, and, and just that weight from the bird sitting on my shoulder, after about 20 minutes, I couldn't do it because, you know, my shoulder was hurting. So the weight of one of these cloaks is like having a couple dozen macaws sitting on your shoulders? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Light as a feather goes out the window when it gets into the hundreds of thousands that are on the body of a feather cloak. So if something like a cloak can have hundreds of thousands of feathers, what about the pa'u? How many feathers does it have? Roughly the same number as the median home price on the island of Oahu for those listening at home in the islands. 
Yeah, we're talking about at least a million feathers. Wow. I wonder how many birds that factors out to be. Well, okay, here's the thing. The pa'u is almost entirely yellow. And all of those yellow feathers come from one species of bird, the o'o. It's actually, let me show you a picture, an illustration really, of this bird. Oh, that's different. I was expecting a fully yellow bird, but it's not. It's like a black bird with kind of yellow adornment on its wings and near the base of the body where the tail comes out. Right. The o'o's plumage is largely black, yellow pa'u, black bird. So, in order to collect a million yellow feathers for all 20 feet of the pa'u, Marcus says you'd need at least 150,000 birds. Okay, Savannah, slow down. How would you even collect that many feathers? Did they have to kill all those birds? By all accounts, no. Feathers were like the jewels of Hawaii. But their significance was more than just decorative. Ritz says Tanaka Maoli believed that birds occupied a higher realm. The Hawaiians felt that all the native Hawaiian birds were the most sacred. The feathers were the most sacred because they would be able to be the closest to heaven. And the feathers could capture just a little bit of that special power. That's why they were reserved for ali'i. So birdcatchers would use poles with a sticky paste at its tip. And when a bird landed on the pole and got stuck, the birdcatcher would take just the feathers that were going to be used for featherworking and then release the bird. Certainly this wasn't objectively good for them. Birds can only lose so many feathers before it starts to impact their health. But they're not killing the bird intentionally. Right. But here's another remarkable thing about the pa'u. Marcus believes that all of these feathers were collected at one time. All one million of them. What is recorded is that the people of Lahaina went and gathered the feathers on Maui itself as a symbol of their love and commitment to their chief. And, you know, historically, there are very few examples of sightings of the O'o on the island of Maui. So to make the pa'u, there would have had to be at least 150,000 of them on Maui at one time. But somehow we don't have anybody saying that they saw this bird. How's that possible? Well, the bird is extinct. Technically, there are no examples of a specimen of the o'o from Maui in any collection or museum institution around the world, even here in Hawaii. Except, Marcus says for the pa'u itself. So this pa'u is the only physical evidence that we have of the existence of an entire species? Well, it's hard to truly know for sure. There's a couple factors at play here. Birds lived in Hawaii for millions of years without ever having to contend with human beings. Sounds like a nice life. Yeah, but... When Polynesians arrived in Hawaii, they brought with them predators and changes to the landscape, all of which had a devastating effect on the island's bird populations. And by the time Europeans stumbled on the islands about a thousand years later, over 70 kinds of birds had already gone extinct. Hmm. And those are just the birds we know about. 
through subfossil records or other collected specimens. Even more birds, like the OO on Maui, just exist as stories. They're almost like ghosts. But Marcus says the pa'u is made with feathers from OO on Maui. Yes, but okay, here's where it gets complicated. There are three officially recognized species of OO. And the OO that lived on Maui may have just been one of those species, probably the Molokai OO, also known as Bishop's OO. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward. Well, there's one part of that theory that just doesn't quite add up for Marcus. Each species of OO had its own defining characteristics, right? That's how we distinguish them. Now, when you look at the feathers used in the po'u, they don't match up with any of the specimen records we have for the other OO species. And Marcus invited me to the Bishop Museum to see the po'u firsthand. Well, here we are. Now, (laughs) at first glance, it's like looking into the sun, but once your eyes adjust, you can start to pick out these small brown dots amid this sea of golden feathers. And if you look closely at the surface, you'll start to notice, like, oh, it's everywhere. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing is covered in those little black marks all over. It's almost like it has freckles. Yeah, it, yeah, it almost does. And to Marcus, those tiny freckles are the last calling card of an entirely unique species. Because now all of those birds are gone. They're all gone. But Marcus says that when they were alive, O'O on Maui reigned over the forests. If you've been up into the mountains, you know that there's all these profusion of bird calls from all the different species, you know, the E.E.V. bird, the Amakihi, the Apapane. The calls of each of these birds are very distinct. But what was recorded in many accounts, when an o'o came into an area, the forest went silent. Really? Why? Because the other birds would leave in deference to the o'o, this big, magnificent blackbird just fringed in yellow. So no other bird could sing while the o'o was singing. That's what's been recorded on other islands, so it stands to reason that's what happened on Maui. And the O'o ruled over the avian kingdom with the strength that the people of Lahaina hoped Nahiena'ena would possess. I think that's quite a powerful kind of metaphor as well. You know, that even amongst the bird world, the O'o was considered, in a sense, supreme. You know, all other birds would leave. They would create that space for the O'o. It might have just been a very territorial bird, you know, and, and just kicked everybody out. You know, it could have been that. But that idea that even within the bird world, the OO had that kind of station or that authority is so symbolic, especially when you assume that those feathers were the ones that were sought after. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we find out the fate of Princess Nahianena, her pa'u, and her people. So, nine years old, Nahianena gets this pa'u, which 
in addition to being five times her size, is made with a million feathers from a royal bird and crafted through the tireless efforts of artists who are worried that their sacred practices would die out as their kingdom is colonized. And the message couldn't be clearer. Nahi ena ena, save us. Wow, I mean, what, what did she do? Nahi ena ena wore the pau. But she wore a Victorian black dress under it, essentially straddling the growing rift in her world. And she continued to be pulled in different directions for the rest of her life, her kuleana, or responsibility to her people, and her religious beliefs, her love for her brother, and the expectations of the missionaries. And when Nahi Ena'ena grew up, as was much anticipated, she became pregnant. So the pa'u worked, essentially. I mean, Nahi Ena'ena fulfilled the wish of her people. Well, at this point, Nahi Ena'ena's brother has assumed the throne and taken on the name Kamehameha III. And when Nahi Ena'ena's baby is born, it'll be next in line to succeed him. But then, the baby was stillborn. And Nahi Ena'ena herself died just a few months later. Oh, wow. How old was she? 21 years old. Doctors weren't able to determine the exact cause of her death at the time. But a few accounts attribute Nahi Ena'ena's death to grief over the loss of her child. That's what Marcus believes. She had so many hopes and aspirations and dreams, just like her people, for this young baby, for it to pass away. I think that weight just was too much for her. When Nahi Ena'ena died, her brother Kamehameha III had her pa'u cut in half and re-sewn. Why would he do that? Well, it had a new purpose. It was re-sewn so it could lay over Nahi Ena'ena's casket at her funeral. Wow. So it's like you've got this pa'u, this incredible symbol of hope for the future of the kingdom, and it literally transforms to become a symbol of tragedy. Yeah, and that legacy continued. In 1891, the pa'u was part of the funeral of David Kalakawa, the last king of Hawaii. Two years later, a coup backed by U.S. troops overthrew Queen Liliuokalani, Kalakawa's sister, and the sovereign monarch. The U.S. annexed Hawaii in 1898, and President William McKinley appointed Sanford P. Dole, the son of a prominent missionary family, as the territorial governor. Just over 60 years later, Hawaii became a state. Wow. Yeah. It's very hard not to think of all that loss when you look at the pa'u, especially when you consider the fate of the o'o species. And I don't just mean the extinction of the o'o on Maui, the one whose feathers were used to mate the pa'u. So just after the death of Princess Nahi Ena'ena, the o'ahu o'o was documented for the last time. O'o birds were last seen on Molokai over a hundred years ago. And last year, the Koi O'o, the last remaining O'o species, was formally declared extinct. It hadn't been seen in over 30 years. This is one of only a handful of recordings in existence of the O'o song. Savannah, stop it. I know, I know. 
I mean, first, there's the loss of Nahi Anna and her child, and with it, that particular hope for the kingdom of Hawaii. But then you have the O'o, and it's like you have this whole other royal lineage that's unique to Hawaii, and that dwindles down to just one individual, and then you lose that too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this phrase you'll hear over and over again when you talk about the islands. Hawaii is the extinction capital of the world. And it's true. I mean, two-thirds of our bird species have gone extinct since the first arrival of humans in Hawaii. That's the story I was raised with. And honestly, as someone who reports on biodiversity in the islands, that's the story I've learned to tell. And it's where I thought I was going to have to leave you at the end of this story. But then I read this poem called The Last Safe Habitat by Craig Santos Paris. He wrote it for his daughter shortly after she was born, and he was thinking about that last Kauai O'o. And he wanted a better story, just really anything with a glimmer of hope. I'll let Craig read it to you. I realized I should have printed the font bigger. (laughs) (laughs) The Last Safe Habitat. For the Kauai O'o, whose song was last heard in 1987. I don't want our daughter to know that Hawaii is the bird extinction capital of the world. I don't want her to walk around the island feeling haunted by tree roots buried under concrete. I don't want her to fear the invasive predators who slither, pounce, bite, swallow, disease, and multiply. I don't want her to see paintings and photographs of birds she'll never witness in the wild. I don't want her to imagine their bones in dark museum drawers. I don't want her to hear their voice recordings on the internet. I don't want her to memorize and recite the names of 77 lost species and subspecies. I don't want her to draw a timeline with the years each was first collected and last sighted. I don't want her to learn about the Kauai O'o, who was observed atop a flowering ohia tree, calling for a mate day after day, season after season, because he didn't know he was the last of his kind until one day he disappeared forever into a nest of avian silence. I don't want our daughter to calculate how many miles of fencing is needed to protect the endangered birds that remain. I don't want her to realize the most serious causes of extinction can't be fenced out. I want to convince her that extinction is not the end. I want to convince her that extinction is just a migration to the last safe habitat on Earth. I want to convince her that our winged relatives have arrived safely to their destination, a wondrous island with a climate we can never change 
and a rainforest, fertile with seeds and song. Oh, that's exquisite. Kreit says it kind of comes from that desperate feeling of loving something, someone, that you just can't always protect. For me, as, as a new father, when I wrote this poem, I wanted my daughter to hold on to her sense of wonder and awe towards the biodiversity and beauty of, of the planet. You know, not wanting to break her heart in a way, which I think would have broke my heart if I had to kind of tell her um, the situation of, of birds in Hawaii, which, you know, is an animal that she especially loves. Yeah, I mean, that's the tension it brought up for me, too. I, we have two small kids. And, um, you know, it's like, at what point do you introduce reality? You know, the thing about extinction is, is when someone comes into the world after something's gone, it's not part of their reality. What kind of world are we as adults, as people who, who know what's happening, are we trying to create or change for our kids? Craig is not looking forward to the day when he has to answer those questions. How do you explain something like the extinction crisis? How do you make that okay? I'm not okay with it. But Craig says we have to talk about it. We have to tell these stories, even when they're hard and even when they're sad, because stories will keep us from losing these birds all over again. I don't think we fully understand as human beings what extinction means. Stories are our memories in many ways. And through stories, we can pass on knowledge and wisdom and, and custom and, of course, histories. And so, you know, stories about birds or other lost species help keep them alive in our imagination. And the pa'u does it too, in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what Marcus thinks. And that's why he considers it an honor to be a steward of the pa'u, even if it comes with a lot of difficult conversations. Going back to Hawaiian tradition, duality is integral. There's no separation of hope and fear and desperation. They're one in the same. The pa'u really is that physical example of the entire continuum the past, the present, as well as into the future. For Marcus, even a last chance at saving something is still a chance. Right. Just the fact that the pa'u was made in the first place and that it still exists is kind of a testament to that hope. And properly cared for, the cultural curators at Bishop Museum think the pa'u could easily last for generations. And with it, the story of Nahi Ena and the story of the O'o. To have the physical manifestation of it safeguarded in the museum, along with living examples within the community, I think only strengthens that resilience of the story of Nahi Ena. And when Rick makes his pa'u, he wants to make it with its original dimensions so that Kanaka Maoli can see and experience what the pa'u was like in its intended form. Speaking of which, when will Rick be done with his pa'u? Oh, <laughs> it's on the to-do list. He's looking at getting it started early next year, which will be the 200th anniversary of when the Kumuhulunui of Lahaina created their pa'u for Nahi Ena Ena. 
But it took them eight months, at least, to make the first one. So granted, it'll take a little bit of time. And ultimately, he would like to work with Bishop Museum to have it displayed alongside the original pa'u of Nahi Ana'ena. Rick's intention to create a pa'u in honor of Nahi Ana'ena, I think, just brings us back to the beginning. You know, the intentions of why it was created and for what purpose and for whom it was made for. There's that duality again. Exactly. You know, Crate's daughter, who he wrote the poem for, is about seven now. Just a couple of years younger than Nahi Ana'ena was when the po'u was first made for her. And like Nahi Ana'ena, Crate's daughter is also inheriting a world that's undergoing just tremendous change. If she gets a chance to see the pa'u side-by-side, the original and Ritz recreation, I hope she sees something we can't. Like what? A better story. And maybe, one day, a better ending. A Better Story is just what a lot of people have been trying to create for the Hawaiian crow, or the alala. This is a bird that's truly teetering on the precipice of extinction, and wrestling with that gives us a glimpse into just how messy conservation can be. You know, you have another threatened endangered species eating an endangered species, so there's not much we could do. That's next week on Threatened. This episode was produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote and me, Ari Daniel. It was edited by Caitlin Pierce of the Rough Cut Collective. Audio mix by Sam Johnson and Mark Bramhill. Fact-checking by Connor Guerin. Our theme song and original music were composed by Ian Koss, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Threatened is a production of BirdNote and overseen by content director Allison Wilson. You can find a transcript of this show and additional resources, BirdNote's other podcasts, and much more at birdnote.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time.